0: Bienvenue, and welcome back to the Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. This week, we'll conclude our series on the three men named Alexandre Dumas. First, we learn the story of General Alexandre Dumas, a mixed-race, revolutionary war hero descended from slaves who unfortunately managed to make a personal enemy out of Napoleon Bonaparte, known racist and holder of grudges. Last week, we followed the rise of the general's son, the Alexandre Dumas you're most familiar with, author of best-selling plays and novels about swashbuckling action, adventure, romance, and destiny. Alexandre overcame a childhood of deprivation to make it big. With the debut of his smash bestseller, The Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas had reached the top. The only one who wasn't impressed? Alexandre's son, Alexandre Dumas Jr. This week, we'll follow the story of Alexandre Dumas Pere, aka the famous author, and finish the story of Alexandre Dumas Fils, the playwright, and the final member of The Three Alexandres. You knew my father. You remember his kindliness, his unchanging and powerful gaiety of spirit the prodigal way in which he spent money, talent, strength, and life itself. By affection, he made up for what was legally lacking to his paternity, and I grew up to be his best friend. So spoke Alexandre Dumas fils, the only son of the famous author who lived his entire life in the shadow of and in reaction to the extraordinary success of his father. The international success of the Count of Monte Cristo marked the high point of Alexandre Dumas Père's career. Money flooded in from every corner of the world, and only a man like Alexandre could possibly have spent it all. And yet, spend it he did, beginning with the construction of an outrageous, fantastical chateau, which he named, you guessed it, Monte Cristo. For the first few years, Alexandre Dumas lived larger than ever, entertaining infinite friends, fans, hangers-on, and, of course, mistresses. His housewarming party had 600 guests. As insane as it would have been to anyone alive at the time, the most famous author in the world was essentially broke. When he engaged in a number of harebrained schemes which went bust, Alexandre decided he was ready for a little me-time, uh, outside the country, and he hopped on a boat to Italy. There, the same Alexandre Dumas who had been barred from the military schools on account of his mixed-race status now had the opportunity to join in the action as an adult. Italy was in the midst of a fight for unification, the fight which would eventually turn a network of tiny kingdoms into the modern nation-state we now recognize. But it's not certain whether the cause of Italian unification was really that important to Alexandra. What really mattered was a rather extraordinary opportunity for revenge. Alexandre Dumas hopped off the boat in Naples, and he led the fight to drive the king of Naples out of his own lands in the name of the new unified Italy. In case you don't remember, the last time we saw the king of Naples, he was holding Alexandre's father, General Dumas, in prison for two years, destroying Alexandre's beloved father in the process. It was a moment of bittersweet vengeance, and a stroke of luck so improbable, it could probably only be found in a novel by Alexandre Dumas. While Alexandre Dumas' père sailed the seas to chase adventure and flee his creditors, Alexandre Dumas' fils suddenly found his own star rising. Years ago, Alexandre encountered the first great love of his life, a courtesan named Marie Duplessis. She was tall, very slender, with black hair and a pink and white complexion, wrote Alexandre Junior afterwards. He wasn't the only one to notice. All of the most powerful men in Parisian society begged for the opportunity to make Marie their own, and she was considered the most elegant woman in Paris. Yet the glamour and beauty of her life hid a tragic secret. Having finally been introduced to the beautiful young woman of his dreams, Alexandra spent an evening nervously drinking wine in the presence of this gorgeous woman, enjoying the splendor of an apartment filled with beautiful treasures and vases and vases filled with her favorite flower, white camellias. He spent the evening, and I quote here, talking like an idiot and laughing louder and louder as the conversation became more and more outrageous. Suddenly, towards the end of the meal, Marie was overcome by coughing and fled the room. In search of the ill young woman, Alexandra found Marie lying face down on a sofa. On a table beside her was a silver bowl, and within the bowl there was blood. The lady of the camellias was not long for the world. Racked with pain and boredom, Marie liked sweet Alexandra Jr. well enough, but not enough to stop going out with rich gentlemen who paid for the wine that she used to numb all of her pain. Young Alexandra was furious and desperate, begging his father for the money it would take to please Marie. In her own way, she loved Alexandre Fis, and she invited him to her apartment for dinner every night. After which, she would usually spend the evenings gazing into a burning fireplace in her dressing gown, saying nothing. Finally, Alexandre knew he could not bear the torture any more, and he wrote her a letter I am neither rich enough to love you as I would wish, nor poor enough to be loved by you as you would. Let us both, therefore, forget. There is no point in my telling you how sad I am, since you already know how much I love you. Farewell, then. You have too much heart not to understand the reasons for this letter, and too much intelligence not to forgive me. A Thousand Memories, Alexandre Eight months later, while the chaotic sounds of Carnival filled the streets of Paris with noise and laughter and excess, Marie Duplessis drew her last breath in a quiet room. Her memory would haunt Alexandre for the next three years. In 1848, when Alexandre Dumas' fils was only 24 years old, the Lady of the Camellias found its way onto bookshelves and into the hearts of hundreds of thousands of readers. The sad tale launched Alexandre Dumas' Jr.'s own career on the page, but that wasn't all. Within a few years, the novel was adapted into a stage play. If you've spent the past few minutes thinking, huh, you know, that, that story, that plotline just sounds so familiar, it's little wonder why. A few years after the publication of The Lady of the Camellias, it was adopted by the composer Giuseppe Verdi into an opera called La Traviata. Later, it became the basis of no fewer than 16 stage productions and 20 motion pictures, including the Greta Garbo film Camille and the 2001 movie Moulin Rouge. Needless to say, Alexandre Dumas' fils was finally a star in his own right. For the first time, the two Alexandres enjoyed an equal level of fame and glory, and their closest years of friendship. Yet, Alexandra never forgot his true heritage. After the success of the Lady of the Camellia's opening night provided a good income, Alexandre Feast did not throw his new money away on banquets and mistresses. Instead, he used his money to finally, at long last, provide his long-suffering mother with a dignified way of life. On opening night of his first stage adaptation, Alexandre Fis ignored his cheering friends and fans and took his mother, Catherine Le Bay, out for a luxurious dinner. The poor but proud seamstress, completely forgotten and mistreated by Alexandre Dumas Pere, would now enjoy a comfortable retirement in a small but lovely apartment with sunshine and a view of the park. While Alexander Jr. may have grown closer to his father, Alexander Jr. would never forget the injustice that his family had faced due to his father's refusal to marry his mother. Alexander's rage at the ill treatment of women by men and the unfairness of illegitimacy would fuel his art and his own moral code for the rest of his life. In the meantime, Alexandre Dumas Sr. was the same as ever. As one writer noted of the then 62-year-old living legend, Alexandre Dumas had aged into, and I quote, "...a kind of giant, with a negro's hair now turning pepper and salt, the small eye of a hippopotamus, bright, shrewd, and forever on the watch. He is never at a loss for words. What he talks about is facts." Curious facts, staggering facts, which he drags up in a hoarse voice from the recesses of a tremendous memory. And when he wasn't talking through dinner, of course, Alexandra was chasing, let's call it, dessert. To the deep embarrassment of his upright and morally conscious son, Alexandra continued his long string of mistresses far, far into his old age saving perhaps the best one for last. Ada Isaacs Mencken was Alexandre Dumas' final mistress, a perfect match for Alexandre's irrepressible, larger-than-life appetite for everything. Mixed race, like Alexandre himself, Ada hailed from New Orleans by way of Cuba, London, and San Francisco. She was an actress, but better yet, she was an entertainer. On stage, she would ride a real horse, wearing only nude hose, galloping off stage to the shock and delight of the audience. In her spare time, she gave lectures on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, made friends with Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, and Charles Dickens, spoke four languages, posed naked for sculptures, and carried on love affairs and marriages with prize fighters, tightrope walkers, and gamblers. When the aging Alexandre Dumas pair visited her dressing room after catching her performance, the two kindred spirits recognized one another at once. Throwing her arms around the old man, Ada declared that it was love at first sight. Alexandre took her out for lavish dinners, but he also brought her back to the old haunting grounds of his youth, visiting the old inns where Alexandre had once brought his son's mother, Catherine LeBay. In one of our last images of the author, Ada convinced Alexandra to pose for a photograph together. At the time, the photograph of the old man and the young girl was considered embarrassing and ridiculous, deeply shameful to his son. Now, to a modern audience, it in some ways seems rather charming. All these years later, it's easy to see how happy Alexandra was with Ada. A few months later, Ada took her show on the road. And two years later, she grew ill and she died at the age of only 33. With the death of perhaps his greatest match, Alexandre Dumas' days of love and longing were finally over. Never giving up hope on the possibility of legitimacy. Alexandra Jr. urged his father to do the right thing in his old age and marry his quiet, respectable mother, Catherine LeBay. At long last, his father finally appeared to be tempted by the idea. But to Alexandra Jr.'s surprise, the objection came from Catherine LeBay. "'I am over seventy,' she said. "'I live very simply with one servant.' Monsieur Dumas would blow my small flat to smithereens. It is forty years too late. Later that year, at the age of seventy-four, Catherine LeBay passed away peacefully. She was mourned deeply by her loving son. In the spring of 1870, as the French Empire wobbled and Prussian armies began threatening to invade France, Alexandre Dumas' père began to fade. Enjoying the sun on the southern coast, Alexandre heard the declaration of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and immediately suffered a stroke. The old man, partially paralyzed, dragged himself to his son's door. I have come to you to die. Here, in the home of his loving son, who had long ago forgiven his father's weaknesses, Alexandre Dumas Père spent his final days sitting on the beach, looking out at the sea. To the end, his wits were about him, and he spent his final days surrounded by children and grandchildren, admiring the pretty housemaids. Towards the end, Alexandre Jr. asked his father, Do you feel like you'd like to work? And for perhaps the only time in his entire life, Alexandre Père replied, No. On December 5, 1870, at 10 o'clock in the evening, Alexandre Dumas passed away. In the chaos of the Franco-Prussian War, it would take some time for him to reach his final resting place, but a few years later, Alexandre Dumas's remains were moved to villers cotteret Alexandre was laid to rest next to his beloved parents, the General Dumas and Marie-Louise. Alexandre Dumas' fils was finally on his own. Alexandre Dumas Jr.'s childhood scars shaped him into a very different man than his jovial, careless father had been. As one contemporary observed, Dumas fils is primarily a man with a sense of his own responsibilities. He is scrupulous about fulfilling them, You will not find in him that warm expansiveness which is characteristic of his father. There is something cold in his expression. His childhood, I would go so far as to say his adolescence too, was tempestuous. He analyzes people and things, he avoids surprises, he never lets himself be carried away or fall into habits, no matter how pleasing nor how harmless. He lacks self-assurance and he has a poor opinion of the human race. His great defect is disenchantment. In other words, to put this another way, Alexandre Dumas' fils was an uptight crank, especially when it came to women. With the exception of his sainted mother, Alexandre hated women. As a young man having buried his grief for the Lady of the Camellias, Alexandre fell in love with exactly the opposite of his father's traditional lowbrow actresses, Instead, Alexandra Feast fell head over heels for a Russian princess of all people, an icy woman named Nadia who happened to be... <sighs> ...Alex... ...married. For all of his going on about marriage and legitimacy, Alex de Ma Feast had no problem chasing a married woman all over Europe and fathering a child with her. However, once Nadia's husband passed away, Alex wasted no time in marrying Nadia and joyfully, enthusiastically acknowledging the paternity of his children. But this happiness would not last long. Alexandra was a stone-cold misogynist, and reading his letters is an exercise in eye-rolling. I can't do it. I can't quote from them. But it was an age for that, and his fame grew greater and greater, until, in 1875, Alexandre Dumas Fils was invited to join France's most elite society, the Académie Française. While large sections of Alexandre Dumas Fils' personality are annoying, I think this is the aspect of his personality that I like the best. Unlike his endlessly energetic father, Alexandre Dumas Jr. leapt at any excuse to edge closer towards retirement. Even in his 50s, He started gazing longingly at the idea of doing nothing, and I respect that. He was already a grouchy old man, and his replies to fan mail are hilarious. I think I can say, without exaggerating, that I get anything from 40 to 50 letters like yours every month. You are not the only man alive who works, waits, and finds his talents unrewarded. Others besides yourself approach me. You want to have a chat with me? Towards the end of his career, Alexandre saw one last sensational success. His final great work, the play, Denise, was the greatest hit the theatre had seen in 30 years. The grouchy playwright was dragged on stage for a standing ovation before being dragged again over to the box in the theatre which contained the newly elected president of France, who offered Alexandre his sincere congratulations. Over the course of the evening, his wife, Nadia, had asked for telegram updates of the play's success every 30 minutes, while she recovered from an illness in northern France. To ensure the messages went through, the Ministry of France ordered the post office to be kept open late. It was, in some ways, the greatest honor of a tremendous career. In the year 1895, Alexandre Fies was asked to write the preface for a new edition of his father's masterpiece, The Three Musketeers. Sinking into a daze of nostalgia, the old man now cast his memory back over fifty years to those happy days when the young man and his father grew close for the first time. "'Ah, <sighs> what a good time that was,' Alexandre wrote. "'What happy talks we had! What sweet unburdenings we made!' To me, it seems like yesterday. For close on a quarter of a century, you have been sleeping under the great trees of villers cotteret between your mother, who served you as a model for all the good women you portrayed, and your father, who inspired all those heroes to whom you gave the gift of life. And I, whom you have always regarded, and so did I, as a child at your side, have hair more white than any you could show— The world moves fast, and soon we shall meet again. A few weeks later, watching the autumn sun fading over the trees in the back garden, the last and final Alexandre Dumas slipped away. The three men named Alexandre Dumas overcame enormous obstacles to achieve their success in life. The General Dumas overcame a childhood in poverty and sometimes slavery. Alexandre Dumas Père overcame a childhood stunted by Napoleon's petty revenge. Alexandre fils overcame a childhood stunted by his illegitimacy. Above all, these three men overcame the racial prejudices of their times. General Dumas, quote, the black count, grew up in a unique and long-forgotten culture of mixed-race society over in what we now call Haiti, only to see the fortunes of black Frenchmen throughout the French Empire rise and fall on the whims of a single, vindictive emperor. Alexandre Dumas, the author, faced racist attacks even at the height of his fame with Honoré de Balzac referring to him as that Negro, and other critics launching attacks against, quote, the savage in French newspaper, depicting him as a devil who boils his white characters alive. Even when they were praising them, French society wouldn't let the trio forget their racial heritage. What an admirable Negro, they wrote about the light-skinned, light-eyed, light-haired Alexandre Dumas fils. Yet these men shared so much more than a racial heritage. They also inherited an extraordinary drive, a quest to prove themselves, endless wit, boundless imagination, a sense of personal charm, an absolute, unyielding ambition. Constantly working to preserve one another's legacy and accomplishments, the three Alexandres, the general, the author, and the playwright lived in a way that could perhaps only be summarized by one motto, all for one and one for all. In 1883, a new tribute to Alexandre Dumas' pair made its debut. In the Place du Général Cattreau, in the northeastern corner of Paris, a beautiful statue of the author, seated in a chair looking out into the distance, towers over three smaller figures clustered around his feet: a student, a workman, and a young girl, sharing a copy of one of his books. On the back side of the statue, the musketeer D'Artagnan surveys the Parisian streets with a serene expression. This moving, wonderful tribute to the man, his works, and his legacy brought tears to the eyes of Alexandre Dumas' Fils. And every day, on his walk home from work, Alexandre Dumas' Fils would pass the statue of his father. He would smile and he would whisper, «Bonjour, papa!» Twenty years later, another statue debuted in the same park in tribute to Alexandre Dumas' fils. Finally, in 2009, a bold new work of art joined these two pieces. Entitled Fer, or Irons, the piece was dedicated to the memory of General Alexandre Dumas and to all those who suffered under slavery throughout the French Empire. The sculpture depicts a pair of slave shackles, reaching more than five meters high and weighing several tons. The chain is broken, and the prisoner is free. Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and I research, write, and produce every episode of the show. If you haven't done so already, visit the website at www.thelandofdesire.com to find out more about today's episode, and like us on Facebook. Thank you so much to those of you who took up my challenge to reach 100 reviews on the iTunes store. We are almost there. So many of you wrote reviews in just the last two weeks. I loved one comment from a listener who pictured me sitting in my living room telling tales of France very close. It is actually my closet. Better acoustics, you know? If you haven't done so, would you mind taking five minutes to leave a review so that others are willing to take a chance on the show? I read and cherish every review. I'd also like to thank everyone who wrote into me via the show's website in these last couple of weeks. I absolutely love hearing from all of you. It is a complete delight And it reminds me of why I spend every other Wednesday night sitting in my closet, talking into a bunch of coats and a microphone. So join me again in two weeks for another tale from my closet. Until then, au revoir!